I heard a story one time uh, from Mark Hafner told this story and it has, has kind of stuck with me for a lot of years about the beginning of the 20th century when electricity and electric light was just kind of beginning to become a thing and more and more homes were adopting this new technology of having electricity and electric lights and, and replacing their old kerosene or oil lanterns uh, with electric light. And it took a while for some people to really catch on to new technology as it does today, right? Um, it's not as slow as it used to be, but a, lo a lot of people in, in more rural areas, older people who were used to um, always kind of lighting places with oil lanterns, uh, that was norm. And this story was about a, a young man who came home after being gone for a while, and he was trying to convince his parents, who were um, older farmers in a rural area, never had electricity, never needed it, um, trying to convince them to install electrical lights, and he finally won them over. He finally convinced them to do it, and they installed electrical lights in this home. And the first night, it came dark outside, and the sun stood in the living room with them, and he, f he flipped on the light switch, and on came the lights, and, and they were just bright, brighter than they, any light they had ever had in their home. And, and the light extended to every corner of their living room, and they began to look around at, at all these things they'd never seen before, you know, and the walls and the ceiling, and, and pretty, pretty soon they kind of nervously looked at each other, and the, the father looked at his son and said, turn the lights off, and he switched them off, and he quickly went and got his kerosene lantern and lit it up, and it's like, we don't want electric lights. It's like, well, well, Dad, why? It's like, did you see all the grime and the oil? And all those things up on the wall and the ceiling, it looked better before. Well, it looked better before because they couldn't see all the things that, that were a product of these oil lamps, all the grease and the grime that had built up over the years. And electric light just pointed it out and, and, and made it come into the light even more. And so they would rather live with what they knew and not have to clean all that up, you know afterwards. So I'm going to have to have somebody hit, hit my slides for me, if you would. Light is an amazing thing, uh, and there, there's nothing quite like it. And, and like these folks who were really hesitant to adopt a new technology because of what it revealed, today's passage forces us to kind of do the same thing and look, look at our own dark places, our own shaded corners of our lives and decide if we will come into the light or not. And we're in Matthew chapter four today, the, the verses that Colleen read, starting at verse 12, where it says that when he had heard that, that he had been, with John had been arrested, he, Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. And, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And so today's passage really begins surprisingly almost, sounding as if Jesus is, is beating a retreat. Almost it, it feels like he's running away, like he's reacting to this news of John's being arrested by running. Just in two short verses, we hear that he, he hears this bad news of John's arrest, then he withdraws from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, and then once he's there, where, which is really his home, he leaves his hometown of Nazareth and goes to 
this city of Capernaum by the sea. And as we'll see later in Matthew in chapter 14, you can hit the next slide, John's arrest was, was politically motivated. It says, for Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And beneath this, this outward political situation with Herod, John the Baptist's arrest wasn't, wasn't just um, some event that, that took God by surprise. This was both divinely ordained and it was divinely timed. John had, had gone up against Herod, one of the most powerful men in the country, by telling him that he couldn't have his brother's wife. And he was arrested for it. And it would be easy to see that, that maybe Jesus was responding in fear. I mean, he was pretty closely connected with John. Maybe Herod would come after him next. But we have to look at this as, as recognizing that Jesus was not taken back by it. In fact, this was a divinely ordained and a divinely timed event. Let's see if I can get this going again. It was all part of a plan. Which, by the way, this was a political event, and I just have to remind you today that any political event that happens is part of a plan. Any personal event that happens in your life is part of God's plans. These things do not happen by accident. And for Jesus, this event, his, this John's arrest, signaled to him that a time had come. It was an event that showed him that the next thing was supposed to happen and that it was his time now to step on the stage. Now remember that John the Baptist had acted as a, a forerunner, as a herald coming before Jesus and preparing the people for him. He was, if you will, an opening act. And until he had stepped off the stage, the time was not yet right for Jesus to take the stage. But now, act one, scene one is complete and we can picture God as, as the, the author and the director of this grand divine drama. And now he's giving Jesus, the Messiah, the cue to step onto the stage and to step into his role as the main character of this story. So, so Jesus' withdrawal into Galilee isn't due to, to fear. It's, it's not a, a reaction, but it's a response to the intentional and timely move of God. It's the result of Jesus' own understanding that his time has come. So if you look at uh, the next slide, Mark chapter one, verse 15, the parallel passage where in Mark, where, where Jesus comes preaching, this is what he says. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Very similar to what Jesus says here in Matthew 4, 17, but, but leading with those words, the time is fulfilled, the time is ready, the, the time is pregnant and ready to give birth. Paul communicates the same idea in his letter to Galatians, next slide, to the churches in Galatians 4, 4, he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So Jesus withdraws to Galilee right at the exact right moment, the perfect time with clear intentionality. In other, it's, in other words, we could look at it as Jesus saying, okay, game on. The coach just put me in. I'm ready to play. And here we go. 
Now, Jesus had spent the majority of his life in this little town of Nazareth with his family, and now he was leaving Nazareth, or leaving home, leaving the people who grew up with him and who were familiar with him, and he resettling in the nearby town of Capernaum, which was a lakeside city of a, not real big, it was about 1,500 people on the, on the northern shore, northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it's interesting because Matthew doesn't give us much detail, but Luke actually does. And in his gospel, Luke chapter four, there's a pretty significant story regarding uh, kind of Jesus's last moment in Nazareth before he leaves there and goes to Capernaum. There we have the story of Jesus coming into the Sabbath, as was his custom on the Sabbath day. And they put the scroll before him and they invite him to read. And he reads from the scroll of the Old Testament from Isaiah, what we now know as Isaiah chapter 61. And he reads through it and he says, this scripture is now fulfilled in your hearing, in your presence. Basically, I am the the one that the Spirit is upon. I am the Messiah. And initially, it's crazy. You read the story. Initially, how the people respond, these are the people from his own town, the people who know him in the synagogue, and it says that they spoke well of him and marveled at all the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Well, Jesus doesn't leave well enough alone. He decides to to prod, he decides to poke a nerve, and he begins to tell them that the Messiah's job description, the Messiah's mission isn't just for the Jews, not just for them, but it's also for the non-Jews, for the Gentiles, for the outsiders, for the nations. And they quickly turn tail on him, and it says that when they heard these things, this is the next slide, Luke 4.28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with Wrath, And they were so mad that they took Jesus and they escorted him out to the edge of a cliff and they were ready to throw him off because they were so mad at him. But thankfully, miraculously, he slipped through, got away, and guess where he went? He went to Capernaum. And so this is a little bit more of a story, a longer account of how Jesus left Nazareth. But in in contrast to that, we have Matthew's account, which just is a few words long. And he doesn't focus on Isaiah 61 like Luke focuses on. Instead, he focuses on Isaiah 9. So look at Matthew 4.13. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here he quotes from Isaiah 9. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So Jesus' actions here may seem pretty mundane. We may easily read over this whole passage and go, well, that's nice, let's get to something exciting But what is actually happening here, what Matthew is saying is that Jesus in this moment, in this move back to Galilee and to Capernaum is actually a fulfillment of the ancient scripture. And when we think of the idea of fulfillment and when Matthew writes about fulfillment, it's not as simple as a concept as we often think. We think, okay, somebody speaks a prophecy like, hey, it's gonna rain tomorrow. And then when it rains tomorrow, that prophecy is fulfilled. It happened. The event happened. There's a one-to-one correlation. Now, that is certainly part of what is, is built into the idea of fulfillment here that Matthew talks about. But his, 
His understanding of fulfillment is so much more complex than that. And I want to use a, an object lesson. You guys were wondering what was falling out of my pockets earlier. It's balloons. I have balloons up here. I want to use an object lesson to show kind of what Matthew is doing here. And, and we, can, we can think of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 9 as a, as a balloon, as an empty balloon. Something gets laid down in the scripture and you can imagine it like this. Now, a balloon is a balloon. Is this a balloon? Okay, it's empty though. Is it still a balloon? Yes, it's still a balloon. A balloon is a balloon whether it's empty or whether it's full. But, but nobody loves an empty balloon. You ever go to a party and somebody's just scattered empty balloons all over the floor? No, you, you fill them up, you put helium in them, and you put them around, and they bring cheer to everyone. And then when you pop them, it's really great, or you can take the helium and talk in a really high voice or something like that. But a balloon needs air inside of it to really be all that it is intended to be. When I was practicing, I popped it, and I thought, man, that would be scary with the microphone, anyway. So I won't fill it up too full. So in the, in the case of, of a prophecy like Isaiah 9, we could imagine that it's an empty balloon. And then Jesus comes in on the scene and he blows air into the prophecy. He blows air into the balloon and he gives it its true shape. He takes the hopes and the expectations of Israel and he fills them up and shows people what they ought to be. Jesus fills up the prophetic words and, and, and images of the Old Testament figure and gives them their fullest and truest meaning. He is the perfection of what God had in mind for the prophetic words. So for the last few weeks, I've been saying something along the lines of, Jesus is the true and better Israel. And what that means is that Israel is like a balloon, it's empty, and Jesus comes and he, he becomes and does and acts all the things that Israel should have, and he blows up that balloon and he, he makes it what it's supposed to be. He takes the limp and empty Israel balloon and makes it what God intended for it to be. Next slide, please. Now we see this kind of fulfillment happening then in this move to Capernaum, which, which Matthew identifies as not only fulfilling Isaiah's prediction that light would come to this area of Zebulun and Naphtali, but filling up God's intention for it and giving it a fuller and deeper meaning. So listen to Isaiah's words here from Isaiah chapter nine. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. So Isaiah is referring in this passage to the land that was given to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, ten of the, two of the 12 tribes, after Israel came in, entered the promised land and conquered it, the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. These two tribes and their ancestral territory was located in the northern region of Israel. Let's look at the next slide here on the western and the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. So you see there uh, Naphtali and Zebulun there up by the Lake of Galilee. 
Now let's look at the next slide as well, which is a more uh, a slide during Jesus' time. You see Capernaum there at the north side of the Sea of Galilee, square in the midst of Naphtali, Nazareth a little bit uh, further south and to the west. Now this area on this map historically became known as the Northern Kingdom or the Kingdom of Israel. So after Solomon died and his son Rehoboam was on the throne, there was a civil war basically and the, the, the country split into two and 10 tribes went to the north and they were called Israel, the Kingdom of Israel. And then in the south was, was the Kingdom of Judah or those who were ruled by the family, the descendants of David. Now the Northern Kingdom or the Northern Kingdom of Israel where Naphtali and Zebulun would have been was a kingdom that was known for their disobedience. They were known for their rebellion. They were known for their idolatry. They had a a series of horrible, evil, unfaithful, wicked kings. And eventually, because of their disobedience, the northern kingdom would be conquered by the empire of Assyria in 722 BC. And the majority of the inhabitants of the land would be deported or exiled and scattered throughout the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrians took other peoples and deported them and planted them in this area and the the people began to mix. And so um, what would happen hundreds of years later is that we would have ancestors of these mixed people called the Samaritans. Now in short, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, which is called the Way of the Sea or the Galilee of the Nations, was, was a land that was abandoned by God due to idolatry, due to rebellion and wickedness. It was given over to the nations. It was a land that was tainted by idolatry, tainted by judgment, and it was connected with spiritual darkness because now it was also full of Gentiles, people that didn't know God. Become a land of outsiders. Isaiah calls it a land of deep darkness and and Matthew translates Isaiah by calling it the region and shadow of death. So the picture, when when people would hear of Galilee, when they would would hear of Galilee of the nations, they would think hopelessness, oppression, fear, death, idolatry, rebellion, judgment. Now originally, Israel was supposed to be a light to the nations. Isaiah himself had prophesied, the next slide, Isaiah 42 I will give you as a covenant for the people, saying this about Israel, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sat in darkness. Just a a few chapters later in the next slide, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The people of Israel were to be a light to the nations. They were to show the entire world who God was so that people would be drawn to worship God through them and through their their own worship and their own obedience to him. But Israel failed in that. They failed as God's representatives. They turned away from God and become darkness instead. But where Israel failed, what did Jesus do? He came to fill up and fulfill what Israel was supposed to be. And so God now is sending his light into this dark place. And the name of that light was Jesus, who's the light of the world, as John chapter 1 tells us. Next slide. In him was life. And Jesus was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not what? 
Let's not overcome it. In John chapter eight, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Israel was to be the light of the world. I am the light of the world. And now that light is coming and it's shining in the darkest place of Israel. And when the light comes on the scene, here's what it says, Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's the first word that the light says in his public ministry? He says, repent. Might be surprising that when Jesus comes on the scene, we don't hear him saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Although he certainly believes that's true, but he knows that the plan for our lives isn't that he would come and make us happy by giving us everything that we want. His plan for our life is that he would come and give us fulfillment through repentance. So the light brings us true happiness by calling us out of the shadows, out of the darkness, away from our idolatry and our sin. And we tend to respond to the beckoning of the light in a couple of different ways. The first response we sometimes have is that of a cockroach. What's a cockroach do when you turn the light on? It runs. When we prefer the darkness, when we we scatter when the light breaks in, we hide ourselves from its piercing brightness. We, We prefer to hide prefer to turn those electric lights on so that we don't have to, off, I mean, so we don't have to look at the stains and the grime and the buildup in the dark corners of the room. And as Jesus said in John chapter three, the light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's one way we can respond, like cockroaches, but alternatively, we may respond to the light like those who have been locked in the dungeon for years. We we emerge from our imprisonment, we cover our eyes for sure because of the piercing brightness of the sun. We shield our tender eyes because they, they haven't been used and they're shocked by the brightness, but we feel the energy, we feel the warmth, we know our need, we know that the sun is a life giving beauty and we make our way towards it. And repentance is like this second response. It's the act of of responding to the light that God brings by coming into the light rather than groping further into the darkness. So repentance, on the one hand, is a turning to the light. It's doing an about-face, 180 degrees from darkness to light, away from, from sin to righteousness turning from slavery to freedom, turning from our idols to Jesus. It's turning from ourselves to God. And as Jesus said in John 3, the the problem isn't that we have grown accustomed to the darkness, or the the problem, excuse me, the problem is that we've we've become accustomed to the darkness and we, we love it. We, we love our sin, and so we want to hold on to it instead. Now, now, Jesus is okay with us bringing our sin into the light. He's not okay with us trying to hide it behind our back when we come into the light. 
Because what will happen when we bring our sin into the light is that God's light will reveal what it really is and we'll understand that what we've been so enamored with is ugly and hideous and putrid and in the light of Jesus, we will want to have nothing to do with it. That's what Jesus does because his beauty far outstrips any other beauty or worth of the idols that we so easily serve, of the sins that we so easily nurture and love. So coming into repentance is coming and turning into light and bringing all of us to Jesus and letting him expose it. And then secondly, repentance is also entering a kingdom. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand which means that it's present, which means that it's, it's near, it's, it's right here. You can reach out and touch it. It's not far away. It has come and the kingdom has come because the king has come. And the king, the king comes and the king rules anywhere where his rule and reign is, is submitted to. And his presence, his, his coming brings a, a seismic shift in history because the king has come and he has brought his kingdom with us. So, so for us to repent is to turn away from all of our kingdoms and turn to his kingdom in allegiance to the true king. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says that what Jesus has done for us is he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And when we turn, we give our allegiance, our submission to the king. So what that means for us is that we too, if we've come into the light, if we've come to Jesus, if we've turned to him, if we've submitted to the king, is to realize a couple things. Is first of all, that Jesus brings light into your dark places. And I think some of us hear, hear that we hear about Jesus' light and we go like, well, maybe for other people, but I've got some pretty dark corners. I've got some pretty hurtful stuff. I've done some pretty bad things. I am fairly worthless. I'm pretty sure Jesus' light could never touch me. And what I want to say to you is that's like the old farmers who turn the electricity off because they don't want to deal with the grime. It's, it's saying that nothing can come and help us. Nothing can come and help me, but Jesus' light, Jesus' love for you, Jesus' ability to come into the darkest places, his desire to shine his light into your darkest places, not to, not to heap shame or guilt on you, but to bring you freedom. So come to him. Come into his light and allow him to shine it into every part of you. He can bring light into the darkest of places. And then secondly, Jesus calls us, he calls his people to be the light. So when we realize that Jesus is the light of the world, it's almost shocking. He says, I am the light of the world in John chapter eight, but it's almost shocking in the very next chapter of this book, Matthew chapter five, when Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, you are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Remember that, that Israel's purpose, God's good purpose for them was that they be a city on a hill, 
that they be a light to the nations, a lamp on the stand, but, but they failed, and where they failed, Jesus has succeeded. And because he succeeded, those who are his can now enter into this very identity as lights of the world. And so as citizens of his kingdom, if, if you've pledged allegiance to the king, if you've come into the light, you are a citizen of the kingdom and now your job, your privilege is to act as lights in a dark world because we are a people, brothers and sisters, we're a people who carry the gospel of light, the gospel of Jesus, the good news of freedom wherever we go. And you get to hear from Scott Graham next week about what that looks like in South Africa as they take and embody and proclaim Jesus to, to people and see them respond and, and walk in new areas of life. This is, this is the same thing that, that God wants to do in us as he sends us out in, in to, as lights to wherever we are, wherever we go. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do come before you and and Lord, my desire this morning is that we would all turn from our dark places and, and bring all of our stuff to you. That we would be people who walk in the light as you are in the light. And that we would not fear because of that, but God, we would see the beauty of Jesus, the, the warmth and life-giving nature of the light that he brings. Jesus, today we magnify you, we lift you up, we we want to know and feel your light and know it in the darkest areas of who we are. So would you come and transform? And when you transform, would you, would you come and create us to be citizens of light, the light of the world, people who display and, and embody and proclaim the life-giving fullness of the gospel? Why? Because we love the king and we know and have experienced and lived the truth of his gospel. So as we go from here, Lord, and we walk out in the sunshine, we enjoy its warmth, would you make us to be lights in this dark world? In your name we pray, 